If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. Hello and welcome to History's Greatest Mysteries. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This is episode four of this series, and it finds us in communist China in the final years of Chairman Mao. In 1971, the likeliest successor to Mao was the army general Lin Biao. But that September, he inexplicably boarded a flight out of China, which crashed shortly afterwards in the Mongolian desert. Fifty years later, numerous questions remain about the mysterious Lin Biao incident. And to try to answer them, I spoke to Professor Rana Mitter, an expert in Chinese history at the University of Oxford. Rana, could you please tell us a little more about Lin Biao and his backstory how, how had he risen to become one of the leading figures in communist China? Lin Biao's claim to legitimacy, Rob, really comes from the fact that he was probably, maybe without exception, the finest general that the Chinese Red Army, the communist army, had during the 20th century. There are other figures, uh, Peng De Huai is one who comes to mind, who were very close in that sense. But I think many people would argue that overall Lin Biao was the most important. And in a sense, his life story tracks much of that bigger story of the Chinese Communist Revolution across the 20th century. Uh, he was, for instance, present in the 1930s and 1940s alongside Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao as he became, and other top communist leaders in the city or town, really, we should say, of Yan'an in northwest China. That was where the diehard communist revolutionaries ended up at the end of the famous Long March of the 1930s. And Lin Biao, we know, was there living in these cave dwellings, very much part of this little revolutionary base that became a rather big revolutionary base and a place that was almost a thinking shop, you might say, a place to think again about how the military and political nature of China might change once they had achieved their revolution in 1949. But Lin Biao really comes of age, really makes his mark in the civil war uh, in the years 1946 to 49. This is after World War II. Uh, the Japanese were defeated by an uneasy combination of the Chinese nationalist and Chinese communist armies. But those two armies then turned on each other. Um, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the then leader of China, and the communists led by Mao Zedong. And essentially for three years, uh, three very vicious years, China's communists and nationalists fought each other on successive battlefields. Uh, the major battles really took place between, well, let's say 1947 and 1949, very early 1949. And Lin Biao in particular was central to that. And I guess we would say that his particular contribution came in an understanding gained over time about how to balance set-piece warfare, you know, big regiments, big battles, big 
order of battle with guerrilla warfare, the classic form of cut and run, chase and run that had been actually in some ways pioneered against the Japanese during the Second World War and then was brought to bear again in various ways during those Civil War years. So essentially, Communist China's finest general, that was what gave Lin Biao tremendous amounts of prestige. And then by the time of the incident that we're going to talk about, is it fair to say that Lin is at the height of his powers and the height of his influence within China? By the time of the Cultural Revolution, which is generally reckoned to have lasted from 1966 to 76, a decade, uh, Lin Biao essentially reached the peak of his influence. It's just worth noting what kind of personality he had to make it clear why in some ways this was a slightly unexpected outcome. Lin Biao unlike some of his top communist uh, rivals, I think rivals is not too strong a word, but certainly comrades, was not a particularly personable character. He was regarded as being, in some ways, a bit standoffish, not someone who necessarily was very kind of full of bonhomie, not hail fellow, well met. He was often said to be quite photophobic. In other words, bright lights bothered him, and he preferred to sort of be a little bit in the in the dark. Certainly, it was said that when... Um, younger women were brought close to him in, in Yen'an and the, the wartime years against Japan, that being close to Lin Biao was not something they much liked to, to, to do. So he was not a personality who was generally charismatic in the way that, of course, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, absolutely was. And yet he rose tremendously in terms of the party leadership in the 1960s and 1970s. And that was really for several reasons. One was that what you might call the conventional leadership of the party, the conventional civilian leadership of the party, epitomized perhaps more than anyone else by Liu Xiaoqi. Liu Xiaoqi was the chairman of the Republic and president of the Republic of China, People's Republic of China. Now, that's different from being the chairman of the party, which actually, even today, is really the more important post in terms of, of, of power. But nonetheless, Liu Xiaoqi was very much second in command to Mao from that whole period, from the 20s up to the, the 1960s. And yet Mao came to distrust him, in large part because Liu had had a quite significant role in shutting down the Great Leap Forward of the 1950s, 1960s, this socialist experiment in collective farming, collective industrialization that went horrifically wrong. Uh, the bottom line was that the agricultural um, calculations were made so badly that essentially more than 20 million people starved to death in the countryside. So an absolutely horrific piece of policy making. Eventually, after much effort, brought to an effort in 1962. And Liu Xiaoqi and another one of his more junior comrades, Deng Xiaoping, who would go on to become, of course, the man who was felt to have modernized China's economy after Mao's death, they basically pulled... Mao's Great Leap Forward policies away from the front line. They instituted instead actually limited market reforms that look very much like capitalism to, uh, to many looking on, and essentially tried to send Mao to an elevated but actually less powerful position. And, you know, to put it at its most concise, he wasn't having any of it. He felt extremely sidelined. He felt extremely angry and looked to instead another centre of power where he might be able to exercise his authority. And being not quite cut out, but certainly sidelined in the civilian leadership, he turned to the army. And Lin Biao, by that stage as Minister of Defence, was a figure who had essentially set up almost an alternative power base in the People's Liberation Army. The army, technically speaking, then and now, not of the People's Republic of China, 
but of the Chinese Communist Party. So the world's biggest party army rather than national army, you might say. And learning from the People's Liberation Army, the learn from the PLA campaign, with Lin Biao's name very much attached to that, became one of the catchphrases of the early to mid-1960s. And that was then mixed in even more strongly when the Cultural Revolution began, this huge internal revolt actually sponsored by Mao himself against his own party and against ultimately figures like Liu Xiaoqi. In that context, Lin Biao made a very uh, powerful alternative second-in-command and that use of China's army became particularly important in 1969, because after three years of the phase of the Cultural Revolution that you know listeners may be perhaps more familiar with if they know a bit of Chinese history, the Red Guards with their little red books, you know, the thoughts of Chairman Mao, waving them in the air in Tiananmen Square, a million of them in front of the chairman. That was really the first three years of the uh, Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 69. And by the end of that time, things were getting so out of hand that actually Mao and top leadership the ones who were left, uh, Liu Xiaoqi was already kind of pretty much on on the way out to uh, to being essentially confined and then uh, died through neglect. But people like Mao, people like Lin Biao and others, essentially decided they had to shut this really tumultuous part of the Cultural Revolution down, and they used the army to do that. So by 1969, you could argue that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is the most powerful entity in China, even during the middle of the Cultural Revolution, and Lin Biao, this powerful, enigmatic figure, the Minister of Defence, the storied general from China's Revolutionary War, he's very much in charge of it, and seen by that stage as Mao's eventual successor. So most people would have looked at Lin Biao in 1969, early 1970s, and said, OK, he's sitting very, very pretty indeed. So Lin, by the turn of the 1970s, is essentially the number two figure within China. But Am I right to say that things had already begun to unravel for him even prior to the incident? I think most of the Beijing watchers, I think in those days they still would have called themselves the West actually Peking watchers because people didn't tend to use the the kind of properly pronounced name for, for Beijing until probably the 1980s. Most of the Peking watchers at the time would have said that Lin Biao seemed pretty much to be clearly designated as the successor to Mao, the number two in very opaque, very non-transparent leadership of the, the Chinese party by the early 1970s. And yet, yes, there are many ways we can now see that clearly things were beginning to crumble away. There were quite a few factors involved. One was that he may have been number two, but there were other people in the leadership who were unhappy about that and wanted to try and take China on a different path. And perhaps the most significant is the figure we haven't yet mentioned, but in some sense, is the only other figure who Mao really felt he had to listen to, even though he didn't always agree with him, and sometimes treated him rather contemptuously. And that was the Prime Minister, Zhou Enlai. And Zhou Enlai is often regarded as the figure who, perhaps, relatively speaking, tried to moderate at least some of the aspects of the Cultural Revolution, although that may be more in rhetoric than reality, to be, to be honest. He was not happy by the direction of travel, the way in which essentially the army and Lin Biao were being brought to the forefront in terms of the way in which China was going. China was a revolutionary state. China was run by a communist party. But Mao himself had made a very powerful statement decades before, which I suspect was in Zhou's mind. And it's one of the most famous quotations from Mao. I'll give it to you now. It's that power comes from the barrel of a gun. That's the phrase that people tend to know. They often forget what comes in part two. And that is, therefore... The party must always control the gun. The gun must never control the party. And people like Zhou Enlai, I think, were very worried that essentially if China became a military 
state rather than a civilian but authoritarian state, that would send China in the wrong sort of direction. But there are also factors to do with Lin Biao himself. And this is something that, again, perhaps only became obvious later to the outside when you know, members of his family and other people were, were, in, were, were interviewed and, and asked some rather discreet questions. Lin himself wasn't actually that interested in politics, it would seem, by this time. One of the questions we have to ask, we still only have partial answers, is was his rise to the top more to do with a very ambitious family, wife, son, other people in his entourage, rather than Lin himself? It was always said that Lin himself was never a very natural politician, even back in the 1940s and 50s. Of course, he was in the top leadership, but it was generalship, not political maneuvering, that really made his name. And that may have been one of the other factors that meant that actually his dedication to taking on that role as the second in command may have come from others around him rather than from the man himself. And what do we know of Lin's relationship with Mao at the time when the incident took place? One of the things we do seem to see is that Mao himself continued to be quite fond of Lin, to regard him as a serious figure who was was, um, high up in the leadership. But it also became clear at about that time that new international moves were happening, and those created a split within the leadership, it would appear, that probably exacerbated the sense of difference between them. And the most important of those splits, and the one that perhaps has become most globally famous, was the decision whether or not to become closer to the United States. So, I mean, just a reminder that although China was, of course, a communist state, it had had an alliance with the Soviet Union that had gone horribly wrong about a decade before, at the beginning of the 1960s. The two big communist giants had fallen out. And essentially, by the period we're talking about, by the late 60s, early 70s, China was pretty isolated from the rest of the world. It wasn't talking to the capitalist world, but it also wasn't talking to what had been its old Soviet um, allies. And this created disquiet in the minds of many in the top leadership, including those who worried that the relationship with the Soviets might get so bad that actually there could be a war. In 1969, there were there were actually shots fired over the Jandao Islands in the Asuri River, which mark um, part of the, the River Iron border between the Soviet Union and China at the time. And while it didn't turn into an all-out war, many people at the time thought that it could well have escalated. So that kind of incident was something they were really very keen to try and get away from. And what this meant in practice was that there had to be debate about if they weren't going to get close to the Soviet Union, and that just looked impossible at the time, was there a way in which they could start talking to the Americans? Particularly at a time when, as we know, thanks to the approach of Richard Nixon, who had been elected president of the United States uh, just a few months before and had taken office in January of 1969, and of course, National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, who undertook, um, at Chinese encouragement, secret visits via Pakistan to China. There was clearly an opening that was being made that might lead to a rapprochement. And what we think we know now, and again, it's still very hard to know because the documentation has never been made openly available. What we think we know is that some in leadership, Zhou Enlai, the prime minister being a good example, were pretty keen to push the opening to the United States. Others were not keen. And it would appear that Lin Biao himself all those around him, thought this was an extremely bad idea. And therefore, this growing sense of a split within the very top leadership, with Mao himself 
perhaps ambivalent about what he felt about this this idea of opening to America. And of course, himself very ill by the stage, don't he actually lived for a few years after that. We now know that motor neuron disease, which he was suffering from, was beginning to encroach on, on Mao's powers during that, uh, that time. So all of these factors were under the surface when that fateful decision to open to, up to America was being made. And that probably fed into decisions that Lin Biao and his family made when it came to how to react. And so then on the morning of the 13th of September, Lin Biao and a small group of his family supporters boarded a plane in China and soon after crashed in Mongolia. And first of all, what do we know about the crash itself? So the crash of Lin Biao's plane in which um, he died along with various members of his family and some of his entourage um, was something that seemed pretty amazing at the time. We don't really have good documentation, and much of it we have had through various sources a suggestion that it was destroyed, actually, afterwards. Um, but it does seem to have come as something of a surprise to many in the, in the top leadership. It wasn't expected that he was going to try and, try and flee. The plane that was basically fueled and took off from an airport in northern China was actually a British Trident plane, British-made. And the original story, which is still, I think, the official version of the story, there has, I think, been some adjustment, but essentially the version of the story is that Lin Biao and family were launching an attempted military coup against Mao, against the leadership. They were found out. They fled to the plane. They got in it. They flew off towards the Soviet Union, where they were going to try and seek some kind of sanctuary. But the plane ran out of fuel, crashed in Mongolia, and there was you know, forensic work done by uh, the Soviets and others afterwards, which suggested that you know, this is what had happened. It was indeed Lin Biao and others who were there and killed, and that was the end of the story. This version of the story has been subjected to quite a lot of questions. First, some people have asked, would it have been logical for them to be actually going to the Soviet Union? Yes, the Soviet Union was an enemy of the PRC at the time, but in terms of the next stage of what they'd be able to do, would it not, for instance, have made more sense to fly to Taiwan, where, of course, the nationalist government continued to be uh, in exile on the uh, uh, on the island? More suspicious than that, though, perhaps, is that it would appear, apparently, from evidence seen at the crash site, uh, which is inspected more than once by um, by Soviet inspectors, was that it appeared to be at the time of crash flying not towards the Soviet Union but away from the Soviet Union. Again, is there a clear explanation for that? There hasn't been one, but it does suggest that something more complex may have been going on. There's also a great deal of dispute about how far ahead of that particular flight, um, both sense of the word flight, the, the, the flight of the plane, but also fleeing from the capital, from, from Beijing, what the role was of Ye Chun, who was Lin Biao's wife, and of Lin Yiguo, one of his sons and the most ambitious politically, whether or not intrigues concerning their desire to get to the top, along with, as I said, this idea that Lin Biao himself may just have been really quite passive by this stage, not that interested in politics, but basically going along with what his family wanted to do. All of these rumours swirled around, not necessarily even resolved today, about what was going on when they fled for the plane and took off and then crashed within a few hours. From your reading of it, how likely do you think it is that Lin Biao and potentially his family as well would have tried to topple the Chinese communist government? It sounds quite implausible. One of the things that we have come to realise is that politics at the top of the Chinese Communist Party over decades is both fiercely rivalrous 
and very, very opaque. And the example I'd give you as a parallel to that, which comes from a more contemporary example, happened only about 10 years ago. Uh, many listeners might remember, either clearly or perhaps a bit vaguely, the case of Bo Xilai, who was a man in the eyes of many, not least himself, heading for the top of Chinese politics, senior communist official, very suave, he'd been the trade minister, seemed to be heading for the top echelon of the Chinese Communist Politburo. And then, you know, almost without warning in 2012, there was um, a warrant for his arrest. He was tried and convicted of essentially trying to undermine the Chinese Communist Party. I think he's in jail to this this day, as far as I know. Uh, even more spectacularly, um, his wife was accused and convicted of having murdered a British businessman by essentially poisoning him in a, a lonely hotel in, in southwest China. So, Deeply lurid story, um, probably one for a future episode of the BBC History Podcast uh, Mysteries uh, series, I have to say, because we still don't know all that we could do about that particular story. But the point is that Chinese communist politics, which often looks very grey and very dull and full of men in grey suits with dyed hair from the outside, there's a lot of emotions under the surface. You know, people mind a great deal about getting to the top because, of course, the price very often for not getting to the top is not well, you've got second place. It's basically you may be purged or you may lose all your family assets or, you know, you may find yourself in exile, never to be seen again. So the stakes are very, very high. And in that context, we don't know yet, even now, even now enough about the ups and downs of the Cultural Revolution. But it is worth remembering that this all happened a few years into, even by China's standards, the most turbulent, the most politically toxic period in recent Chinese history. And it seems to me that we can, you know, we can't, I don't well, we wouldn't say we can never know, but we need a lot more archives to, archives to open up, not very likely in the near future, to be able to um, know quite what was in the minds of any of the top leadership at that time. But it certainly seems to me that, you know, a top leader might have looked at what had happened to other leaders. You know, Liu Xiaoqi, as I said, president of the People's Republic of China, he died, uh, I think that was also in 1969, in the city of Kaifeng in an airless basement where essentially he was held a prisoner, denied medical care, so he died of neglect, essentially. Plenty of other top leaders. I mean, Deng Xiaoping, who would go on to become the paramount leader of China, he wasn't physically harmed, but he was, uh, his son, Deng Piufang, was... Um, chucked out of a window by Red Guards. Uh, he's still alive to this day. He's been in a wheelchair for decades because uh, his back was broken. One other example, the man who leads China now, Xi Jinping, uh, not physically harmed, but essentially as a teenager, sent out to the most remote part of the countryside. Uh, from all accounts, he didn't have a great time there, didn't enjoy it very much, and presumably for years had no idea if he was going to get back or not. We know now that he got back and rose to the top, but he wasn't going to know that in 1967. So, if you're Lin Biao, if you are at the top, I can see that there is a plausible scenario in which you and those around you might say, in this politics that we have around us, who on earth knows what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after or next month or next year? Better act now. It doesn't mean he did it. It just means that it doesn't seem illogical that he could have done. Now, clearly in the crash, Lin Biao lost his life and many of the closest people around him. But did anyone survive from Lin Biao's circle who could shed any light on what happened? Nobody survived from the crash. But he did have other family members, including one daughter, Lin Dodo, who, from all accounts, was not thought to have been, you know, even by the very paranoid party state, to have been involved in, in the plot at all, who afterwards were able to give some sorts of accounts of the state of mind 
of the family at that time. And I think that's where some of these stories about Lin Biao himself not seeming to be terribly involved with politics, but those around him, son, wife, and so forth, being um, a little more um, uh, enthusiastic about uh, trying to uh, to be politically active. That's where this, where this comes from. It's fair to say it's been hard to find out more because the Chinese state has been very, very keen indeed not to say anything very much about this. They say there's an official verdict given you know, way back in the 1970s. There was an attempted coup. It was foiled. That's it. Much of the information we've had has come actually from the Soviets and then the Russians, who, as I mentioned, did the um, inspection on the ground in Mongolia, which at that point, of course, was a Soviet allied state, to see what the wreckage might tell us. And some of the evidence is quite circumstantial. As I say, the direction of impact of the plane, apparently to those who know about these things, suggested it was flying away from the Soviet Union, not towards the Soviet Union. Again, what that meant, not clear. Uh, Questions about were the corpses actually who they appeared to be, because there was a rumour perhaps Lin Biao had never been on the plane. They discovered one of the corpses seemed to have scars from tuberculosis, which Lin was known to have suffered from. So there is a sort of circumstantial, but a sort of strong circumstantial sense that it must have been him in that particular, particular case. But nobody, as far as I know, had found any, you know, kind of last-minute notes or any particular documentation suggesting what they thought they were, were were doing. I don't think there's ever been any suggestion that there was complicity from within the Soviet Union. In other words, this wasn't something that was being plotted from outside. This does appear to have been whatever it was, a plot, a coup, a desperate attempt to get away that was generated from within the Lin family and their entourage. And since, as I said, most of them perished in the crash, and the few who didn't seem to be the ones who weren't involved in the plot, or at least very wisely suggested that they weren't. I think if I were them, I would have said something quite similar, I have to say. We may never know much more than that until files that are are, are closed down are opened up. Has there been any suggestion that the crash itself wasn't an accident, that either the Chinese somehow brought the plane down or perhaps the Soviets? It's difficult to say precisely, of course, because all of these things were, you know, obviously... Someone must have, from the People's Liberation Army Air Force, must have, in fact, have been put on standby to be able to actually fly the plane. And therefore, presumably someone within the structure of government must have known that this was going to uh, to happen. So, you know, could that have been in complicity with someone? Could that have been maybe someone else who uh, you know wanted them to, to get away or was planning to kind of trap them? Uh, these are things that aren't generally... Um, subject to much evidence. And as I've said, it does seem to be in the case that the vast majority of any of the evidence within China was actually destroyed pretty much after the uh, investigation, the official investigation into the crash, which basically said it was a coup and that's it. There have been rumours on other sorts of matters, rather than it being sort of formally made to crash, the idea that there may have perhaps been contacts with Taiwan. Uh, As I've said, there is some suspicion that maybe the Soviet Union wasn't actually the intended destination of that particular um, flight in the first place at all. But it's not entirely clear quite what might have been done to, to, to sabotage a plane of that sort. As I say, the official version that was given was that there wasn't enough fuel. Basically, it ran out of fuel at that time and it hadn't been sufficiently fueled. And I suppose it's plausible enough that if you had a plane that had been 
put together at short notice because you were fleeing, then you might not have had time to make sure that it was, it was sufficiently well-fueled and um, properly um, uh, treated by engineers before it actually went up in the uh, uh, up in the air. I should add, by the way, sorry, I said before, the Soviets inspected the, the wreckage. In fact, the Chinese authorities were given access to it as well um, early on. But again, the products of their particular investigation have not been made public. And whether they've been destroyed is another question, but certainly they were not keen to provide documentation that would suggest any kind of wider uh, sense of what had gone on. Now, beyond the official Chinese version of the story, have there been any other theories that have gained much currency? Interestingly, and I think it is interesting, and, and perhaps oddly, I don't have a sense that there's one sort of definitive alternative explanation that people have put forward. It's a little like the Who Shot JFK mystery in one sense, in that um, at one level, there's a very clear explanation of that. On the other hand, there's also lots of sort of penumbras of things that might have happened, but would be very hard to actually prove in that um, in that sense. I think what most people who want to explain the incident itself have tried to do is to follow some sort of logical thread as to who would have an interest in it happening and who would have an interest in preventing it. And for that reason, I think it's probably fair to say that there might have been perhaps an interest in getting to Taiwan rather than the Soviet Union. There are rumours that perhaps there may have been slightly more contact than has been realised with the nationalist authorities in Taiwan who would have been there in the, in the 1970s at that, uh, uh, at that time. Bearing in mind that Chiang Kai-shek was still alive at the time, although quite elderly by that stage. The island itself was still quite heavily fortified. It's still, of course, um, 1971 was the year that it was only in 1971 that official recognition of China uh, the United Nations moved from Taiwan to the mainland. So it was still in some ways a sort of relatively geopolitically quite fluid period. But even within all of that, there's no one definitive answer. I mean, the, the, the answer that also some people who have found the idea of the coup unlikely have put forward is that it must have been obvious to anyone who was involved in the top leadership by that stage that Mao was a seriously ill man. You know, this was something that anyone close to him must have realised, and I think most of the Americans who finally got to meet him in 72 realised that, you know, this was someone who was still functioning perfectly well, but, uh, you know, was clearly not, uh, uh, not, not, not in top health. So I suspect that for those sorts of interpretations, the idea that actually the successor, whoever that might be, Lin Biao, would have actually got to take over quite quickly afterwards would have been something that would have kept in mind. It was a sort of double or quits thing, you know, do you hang on and get to take over, as it turned out, it would have been, you know, four or five years later, or do you make the also possibly equally rational calculation that five years with a highly unpredictable, very violent form of politics is a very long time to wait, and maybe you should get out while the going is good. But there is, as of now, no one clear definitive answer. Lots of things in the mix, including you know, the attitude towards the Nixon visit, trying to work out the direction of travel of the Cultural Revolution. Personal ambition, of course, uh, could well have been very important, but no one smoking gun or um, a piece of evidence that suggests that it was definitely done for one reason or another. Now, you've mentioned the fact that the Soviets think they found in Lin Biao's body, but Am I right to say there have been theories put forward that Lin wasn't even on the plane and that he'd been done away with some other means? I think actually the sense is more 
as I understand it, that there were such theories put forward quite early on, actually, um, after the crash. The idea that maybe this was a, a feint or a disguise, and in fact he had been spirited away somewhere or other. I think it was the later Soviet inspection that um, looked at the tuberculosis scars on one which one of the corpses had, which seemed to suggest it was Lin Biao who had had tuberculosis, and this was a known thing from earlier uh, earlier life. Um, in any scenario in which the corpse wasn't him and someone else, there would presumably have been a sort of alternative uh, version in which Lin Biao turned up somewhere or you know made his way uh, to some other uh, some other place. And I've not seen any significant or plausible alternative explanation for where he would have been at that time. It also makes sense if one accepts the idea that actually he himself may not have been terribly keen on being very active politically by 1971, but his close family were very close to him, that they would have taken him almost as the kind of, you know, the, the, the token, so to speak, in that um, uh, that trip to the plane to, to escape. And do you yourself have a personal view on this? On where do you come in the sort of various explanations? My guess, and it is just a guess, would be that in the sort of balance between cock-up and conspiracy, there's perhaps more cock-up than people have realised. So I think the idea that there was sort of carefully laying down set of plans and plots and so forth may not have spoken to the reality of what life was like in Beijing at that time. And that's one of the things we do know, I think, more about from the history of the Cultural Revolution. Life was very unpredictable. I was going to say even for the top leaders, but you might say especially for the top leaders. Um, you know, this was a period when, as I say, people had been disappearing left, right and centre. And I can see that at this point, all sorts of policy difference, you know, something that might have been in other circumstances just been a disagreement over policy direction, you know, should we let the Americans in or not, might quite clearly in your mind turn into the idea that if we're on the wrong side of this argument, we might not just lose, we might actually be purged, wiped out, killed. And in that context, thinking, well, maybe just having a plane on standby, <laughs> ready to take us away from all this just in case, might not have been a bad idea at all. I'd refer you back, as I did earlier, to that much more recent, but also in some ways inexplicable scandal about Porcelai. You know, this was someone who, in some ways, appeared to be riding for the top anyway. You know, there were questions about would he have been able to get there because of his age or other, you know, means too. But in a sense, the many risks he appears to have taken, which ended in disaster for, for, for him in some ways, emphasise that even in the very fevered, very inward-looking crucible that is the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, and I suspect that in different ways that's just as true today as it was in the 1970s or the 1950s, in that crucible, what might seem to us looking from the outside with you know distance as being a decision that doesn't make any sense rationally might seem deeply rational at the time, because you have to remember that, of course, they were not making this, these decisions in, you know, the cool, calculated circumstances that um, a leader might do in um, a capital city where there's lots of advisors, where there's free media, where people are discussing policy the whole time. We're talking about a very, very capsule-like sort of environment. And it seems to me entirely plausible in that sort of context that's how Lin and his family may have got himself in the situation where they, they found themselves. Do you think that any documents or any other evidence will emerge from China at some point that might finally solve this mystery? 
At some point, yes. Um, it has been said that everything was destroyed, but something about me tells me that the Chinese archives tend to hold all sorts of secrets, which, you know, with the current administration in place are never going to be released. And so we could be talking about decades or, you know, period even beyond that. But it all seems to me that the Chinese state is very good at keeping tabs on people and having evidence, just burning it doesn't seem to me the way in which the state and the party operate. So I suspect there's more information somewhere, but I think it may be a much later generation of historians that actually gets to find out what it is. And just finally, Rana, we're, we're talking now almost 50 years after Lin Biao's death. I'd be interested to know what his reputation is like in China today. His reputation has really shifted over the last half century. In the immediate aftermath of the plane crash um, and, you know, the the shock news, even in the highly buttoned-down society that was late Cultural Revolution China, the idea that Mao's designated successor had tried to launch a coup, escape, and then been killed was big and very depressing news for many people. So at that point, there was a huge campaign against him, the so-called Criticize Lin Biao, Criticize Confucius campaign that was essentially promulgated throughout the entire country. 50 years on, though, things have changed somewhat. I think it's still fair to say that his name sits a bit in the shadows because, you know, of that reputation of having tried to undermine Mao. But also the earlier part of his life that I talked about, the fact that he was this immensely skilled and brave general in the People's Liberation Army, that he was someone who had helped to bring about military victory in the 1940s and leading up to the establishment of the PRC in 1949. Those sorts of accomplishments are now remembered more openly. And while his reputation, I think, will never be in the top pantheon of leaders in a way that, say, Zhou Enlai, who might almost regard this great rival, has remained very much at the top of people's lists of, of those who are respected. Nonetheless, he is regarded as someone, I think, today who, while you know, he committed this absolutely sort of fateful deed, nonetheless actually is a military commander and someone who was a contributor to the Chinese Revolution who is well worth remembering for those reasons. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.